Hey everyone, this is Sid Finkelstein and this is the Sidcast, the podcast where I talk to all kinds of interesting people to hear what they're about, how they think, what they do, how they became who they became. And when you're finished listening, you're going to say, where is that person? I want to kind of hang out with her. I want to hang out with him. And uh, you know what I want to talk about today before we bring in our guest? I want to talk about accounting, something really fascinating. Uh, I actually um, once thought, amazingly, that I'd be an accountant. I know that's a shocking notion for those who know me now, but um, my older brother, uh, Simon, uh, was an accountant, and uh, I figured if he was doing it, I should do it too, since I had no clue what I wanted to do, like a lot of uh, young people. Anyways, I got into accounting, and I worked for a short time, and I remember getting uh, this uh, feedback, this advice uh, from my manager, and he sits me down, and he gives me a review, and he says, you know, Sid, you're... You're great. You're, you really understand this. You've under, you're, you're, you're got a bright future in accounting. But there's really one thing you need to work on. And so, you know, little Sidney there goes to the edge of his seat and listens carefully. What is it? What is it? And uh, my manager says, well, you know, you really have to stop asking so many questions. And boy, was that ever good advice because that was the last day I ever spent in accounting. Because the truth of the matter is I've made a career out of asking questions. That's kind of what I do. You know, as an academic, as a researcher, I think of things that I'm curious about and I go off and try to uh, find answers to those questions. And I've also found working with uh, people both in, in business and with students and lots of other people that I might be coaching or just friends with, uh, the questions you ask turn out to be incredibly important and maybe sometimes even more important than anything else you're going to do. People that ask the right questions have a much higher probability of finding some really cool answers uh, as opposed to asking the same questions everyone is always asking. And uh, what I I really love about Bruce Sasserdote, professor of economics at Dartmouth College and my my guest today uh, on the Sidcast, is that, you know, Bruce really asks great questions. Uh, and, you know, as an economist, he, his questions might be a little, little bit different than the ones I ask, but uh, uh, he's asking questions like, you know, how do you get more kids into, into college? And how do you do it? And does mentoring really, really work? And does where you go to college matter? I'll give you a little hint on that one. It matters a lot more for people from uh, poorer socioeconomic backgrounds, people that are more well-off. Uh, it actually doesn't make such a big difference, but it sure does for people that don't have quite the same advantages walking in. Uh, do parents matter, and how do they matter? I guess everyone is hoping the answer is yes to that, and the answer is yes, but, um, or yes, and, uh, which is um, uh, parents matter, but you know, so does everything around you, and it's that combination is critical. Another question he asked, because he studies a lot about, there's um, a lot of work with schools, uh, public school districts. He asked about, um, well, does the school you go to, the public school districts matter? And that's a really interesting question because there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of parents who think, you know, I got to move to, to a neighborhood with good schools. Uh, you certainly see it in real estate prices that are boosted up in any neighborhood in any city that has really good schools. Or sometimes you ask the question, you know, should I send my kid to a private school? And so these are very practical, um, very practical questions. Uh, Bruce's research makes it pretty clear that public school districts matter a great, great deal. And, uh, and, and, and the, the context he looked at was really interesting. Hurricane Katrina and, you know, in New Orleans over 10 years ago now, and what happened to all these kids, all these families that were 
that were displaced and had to leave uh, New Orleans in the aftermath of the hurricane. And it turns out that many of them moved to places like Houston and ended up in very different school districts that were actually better school districts. And the net result is that they end up doing better in school. And uh, that's kind of a radical, radical and terrible way to have to be uprooted from your from your home and your your um, uh, your own school. But it really points out that you know school districts matter a a great deal. And uh, as I think about some of that research that uh, that Bruce did, it also reminds me that you know sometimes we label kids as you know good kids or bad kids, smart kids or not so smart kids. And obviously there's there are differences, but uh, it's you know, if, if the same kid moves from one school district in New Orleans that was failing into a, another school district in Houston, that was uh, that is um, that is a much stronger district, and all of a sudden the kid is doing a lot better. It's not about the kid; it's about the district, and maybe we should keep that keep that in mind. Um, one other thing I, I wanted to uh, I, I want to mention is uh, maybe a bit more controversial thing that uh, uh, comes up in our conversation, and that's. Uh, uh, that's the difference between boys and girls, uh, men and women, and, and any other uh, uh, differences, in fact. Uh, and uh, the truth is that while we live in a world where we strive for equality, for gender fairness, for gender equality, and we have a long, long way to go when it comes to compensation and opportunities uh, and, other, and other things, uh, sometimes we forget that, in fact, um, boys and girls are different. I don't think that's a shocking statement to anyone. But uh, this is this is about evolution. It's about how we're hardwired in our in our brains, and obviously the genetic makeup of a boy and a girl is different. And so we should not expect identical uh, paths in in life. And um, despite that, we have this tremendous drive, and I think it's about fairness that girls should be treated equally to boys. And of course, that's correct. Uh, girls should have the same opportunities as boys, and of course, that's correct. But we also have to recognize that there are genetic differences, and sometimes they they play out in different ways. And uh, you know, in our um, in our in our attempt and our striving for uh, for gender equality and gender fairness, which I think just about everyone, hopefully everyone, agrees with, we sometimes forget some very simple things about boys and girls and the differences between the male and female brain, DNA, and and genetics. And we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't really assume that they're identical. Now, that's kind of controversial in, uh, in 2019 as people, uh, as, as we, we, we tend to shy away from real differences between different people. But they, they exist, and I think uh, an honest discussion about what's possible and what's not and what we wanna, how we want to help people and develop people, whether in school or otherwise, uh, should recognize that. So, you know, these types of um, um, conversations... Uh, topics, context, really interesting. Everyone can relate to it. It's about schools, about kids, about parenting. And uh, and my guest today on the on the Sidcast is um, is someone who's made his career and continues to make his career in trying to answer those questions. Not just answering them in the way that you know maybe you know a few of us sitting around uh, sitting around over a cup of coffee might say what we think. Uh, Bruce uh, Bruce believes in data. He collects data. He creates these incredible data sets and develops complex models or at least appropriate statistically significant models to try to explain what's really going on. And this data-driven approach, kind of a Freakonomics approach to parenting in schools, if you will, uh, is, uh, is a, I think, a, 
not only a defensible way to do this, but the right way to do this. Let the data speak, let the, let the evidence speak, and let's get people really studying these things in detail so we have less hand-waving and more kind of really knowing, uh, knowing, what's, uh, knowing what's going on and, uh, and as a result maybe making some evidence-based recommendations for what we should do and what, what we, uh, maybe what we shouldn't do. So um, it's a great conversation. Let's bring Bruce into, uh, into the SIDCAST uh, studio and welcome Professor Bruce Sasserdote. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and today um, our guest is Bruce Sasserdote, a professor at Dartmouth College in economics who's done all kinds of really, really interesting research about, uh, about kids, about people, about learning, about colleges, uh, and actually a lot of other things as well. Welcome, Bruce. Oh, good to be here, Sid. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So uh, I thought it would be kind of interesting to start by talking about some of that, some of that research, and I know you've done work uh, about adoptive, about kids that were adopted and their life chances and outcomes and what happened. Could you share a little bit about uh, that stream of work? Yeah, so, you know, I got super interested in adoptees um, about 10 or 12 years ago. Reading, uh, I was reading a Judith Rich Harris book that claimed that adoptees look nothing like their adoptive parents. I thought, well, that seems a little hard to believe. And so where, where is she finding this from and what, what supports that? And so that kind of that drew me into it. Right. And you, so is that actually common that you get your ideas just from kind of reading a book about whatever? Yes. In fact, NPR, I have sort of two sources of inspiration and a lot of my ideas come from listening to NPR or watching the news and I yeah. get excited about a topic. Right. And do you start into it right away or you just kind of let it settle or? Uh... You know, I have to let it settle because there's usually five or six other projects on the docket. <laughs> and so right. I have to get through those. And the question is always, okay, what data set or what data skills can I bring to the table that's new? Yeah. What that, hasn't been done? That's really, that's really kind of thing that you've differentiated on in terms of uh, um, creative uh, empirical analysis. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's actually raised a question about innovation. You said you usually have five or six projects going at the same time. And I, I guess if you're in a company and you're doing some type of project, uh, most people probably don't work on five or six at the same time. In academics, that's not that unusual, but, you know, it happens. Uh, any, any thoughts just off the top of your head about the process of innovation, of, of knowledge creation when you have, and they're going to be different projects, you know, maybe very different. I'm not sure. That's right. And, and so I agree. I think there's a real diseconomy of scope of having five or six things going. Yeah. But in the modern world, um, you, you know, your listeners will note a lot of things they, they read about in the New York Times that they, they hear on the radio. Projects are very complex nowadays. And, you know, mm -hmm. like it involves right now I'm working with a project that involves three people at Treasury and two people at the Army, and one person who used to be at the Army, and we've merged all these data together mm -hmm. to look at veterans and the children of veterans. And mm -hmm. so it's projects nowadays, as, as standards have gotten up and up and up, and, and administrative data have gotten more available, right. they're incredibly complex. They take a long time. And so you have to, uh, I would say, unfortunately, you have to have multiple right. things going at right. once. Maybe the, maybe the model is a little bit akin to pharmaceuticals, where you have these molecules, and there's a whole bunch they're working on. Some don't pan out. Of course, we hope they all pan out, but some, sometimes they don't. Um, so on, on the research um, on adoptive kids, what was the research question? What were you interested in? So, you know, I wanted to go after this question of, well, how much do adoptive parents matter? How much does home environment matter and family mm -hmm. environment matter? And I didn't really believe the, the, the baseline result that very little of a child, say, test scores or IQ, if you believe in that kind of thing, 
um, comes from the adoptive parents. It seems very hard to believe. And the, the people said, research said, that it didn't come from the parents? That's right. It that's comes from the, your biological parents, um, if anything, uh-huh. right? And so uh, much of the loading is, much of the weight is placed on biological uh, parents. Yeah. And, you know, some of it's done by comparing kids to their biological parents. Some's done by comparing identical to fraternal twins sure. and, you know, the children of identical versus fraternal twins. And, you know, there's a whole um, behavioral genetics model that's supposed yeah. to parse out how much of the genes you share with someone. Right. Right. So you didn't, you, you thought that that can't be right. It was too, that, that, that's basically that, right. That parents actually matter, that, that, which of that, course that as parents, we certainly want to believe such a thing. That's right. Right. That's so right. how do you go about studying a thing like that? So my hook into the data, my first thought was, okay, let me build the biggest data sets of adoptees that I can. Mm-hmm. And those were not very impressive data sets. You know, I, I took the, uh, the adoptees that were in the NLSY, the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, took the adoptees that were in the PSID, mm. the adoptees that were in the, um, there's a British study called the, uh, um, well, it's a panel study. It's like all the children, it's the NCDS, all the so children. So a bunch of databases, published right. databases yeah, that are ones. out there. Yeah. yeah, right. Not that many adoptees in there because only a couple percent of kids in these OECD countries are adoptees. They would, uh, so that data is not about adoptees, it's about kids. It's and about so kids. You, you would extract the kids that Yeah, the, the few hundred that were adoptees. Uh, I see, okay. So you had a different, Right. Um, approach. Right. Um, but so then I said, well, look, really what you need, and the big criticism of the literature as well, of course, the adoptees are not randomly assigned to families, but they're, you know, they're selected, right? There's yeah, lots of yeah. selection based on health. And so I said, okay, well, can I find a much larger data set of adoptees and make mm-hmm. a better claim of quasi-randomization of kids to families? So just explain why quasi-randomization is important. Well, you know, the the basic point here is that the healthier kids, as you can imagine, um, there's a lot of selection in which uh, families, well-to-do families or mm-hmm. high education parents might also be um, finding very able and very healthy adoptees, in part just because a lot of adoptions take place sort of, you know, it's the third cousin or it's, uh, um, you know, it's a, a sibling's child that the sibling can't take care of, so you adopt them. So there's just so much selection of what adoptees ended yeah, up was, in what I was, family. I, I just had the image that it's more, you know, some some mom somewhere can't, uh, didn't want, had a, had a child out of wedlock, didn't want to have the kid, wasn't in a position to have a kid, had nothing to do with the adoptive parents. But you're saying actually that's not the most common. Certainly in, in reality. Of course, now so many births are out of wedlock nowadays. In fact, you know, in some in some OECD countries, well, more than half, uh, there's a huge fraction of births are, are out of wedlock, yeah. um, even to well-educated parents. So, so yeah. now that it's become, I think you're aptly describing the 1930s and 40s, but um, I think when we talk about the kids that I'm studying, like the 80s and 90s, yeah. you know, it's 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 very uncommon to give a child up for adoption just because you have a birth out of wedlock. That's right. That's um, right. You, because it's no marriage is not what it used to be. Right. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. So okay, go back to the research. So uh, what what did you end up doing with this database of adoptees? Okay. So what I ended up doing was saying, okay, could I build a data set? Um, where there was something closer to random random assignment of kids to families. And it turns out that um, Korean adoptees Mm. um, provide a situation that's closer to what you were describing in the the, uh, 40s and 50s, which is that, um, in fact, it was almost first come, first served. You know, subject to a few simple, you know, willingness to have a special needs child or not. Mm-hmm. You know, essentially, these the the, the children, the, the the Korean American adoptees, were matched to their American families on a first come, first served basis, and so you might end up with a large 
farming family in the Midwest, you might end up with a uh, a very well-to-do uh, family in Manhattan, and, you know, and and everything yeah. in between. So and so, these were kids born in Korea, mm-hmm. Korean parents. Yep. Uh, were they always girls? Uh, well, there was a heavy bias towards. Uh, there being girls because of the, you know, the, the, the at that time, the gender bias in that society. Yeah, yeah. And so a, a lot more girls were given up for adoption. Ironically, and this doesn't, this doesn't feed, the, the parents don't specify gender in, in my study anyway. Um, but I, ironically, there was so much demand for girls that the demand, the excess demand for girls actually exceeded the excess supply of girls. Wow, really? Yes. Why, why is that? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Sid, so do you have girls and boys I have, in your family? I have a girl. You have one girl. And I'm so. very happy with the girl. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so girls and boys, despite what, um, you know, despite what modern uh, philosophers uh, will have you believe, there are tremendous differences, um, even, you know, e- even right at birth and certainly as they get into their, um, their middle school and teen years. And so, you know, a lot of families uh, had in their head that they wanted to have a girl um, because they have you know, girls mature at a faster rate. They... Um, Tend to be, uh, they tend to take towards formal schooling uh, a bit yeah. more quickly, and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So let's do a slight tangent because you said something that is like it really triggered a thought. Because there are a lot of people that would like to believe that boys and girls are equal and equal in almost maybe every dimension, even though there are obvious genetic uh, differences, and um, and that the, the 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 reason why there's so much discrimination, girls that are great in middle school, for example, or even in high school, don't move on to STEM or whatever you're interested in, is because of uh, some type of discriminations going on, or they mm-hmm. were treated a little bit differently. Uh, what what do you think about all of that? So I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think again, you know, this was fundamentally an environmental study, yeah, because I believe that environment matters a tremendous amount, and so. Uh, do I believe there are a lot more uh, smart women going into medicine than there are smart women going into finance? And do I really believe that's inherent? No. I think that that is, uh, I think a lot of that is environmental. But I think there are some inherent uh, boy-girl differences out mm-hmm. there. And, and uh, you know, we can, deny, nobody wants to talk about it. We can, de- you know, we can deny it all we like. But I think that, you know, there are definitely um, differences at which the people mature emotionally. Um, you know, and, that, and that's an individual difference and a sexual. Yeah, difference and, and, and yeah, it's important. Difference. You know, it's important. I should, I should, I should say that the within gender differences are much, much wider than the uh, the boy versus girl differences. Yeah, isn't that isn't that kind of amazing that we fall into this? This happens all the time uh, for for race, for for gender. Right. Or one of my one of my favorites, favorites people always ask me about millennials. Yeah. Well, yeah. How many millennials? Are, I don't know, 70 million or something? Yes. They're not all the same. <laughs> yeah, precisely. There is a little bit more uh, yes. within millennial variation than yeah, across. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Uh, but we have these incredible generalizations. I guess that's part of that. that I, I wonder whether you've thought about it or maybe even done research about it. Is it part of our evolution that we generalize this kind of massive generalizations? Yeah. And we're all so comfortable with it. We like it. We expect it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, we're always trying to, our brains are always trying to make sense of the world. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. those generalizations, uh, help, you know, s- sort of help us survive, function, and, and, and make quick decisions. Yeah, but right. you're, you're right. absolutely right. You know, one of the, um, uh, bringing this back to econ data a bit, you know, people worry so much about, well, is my child going to the right school? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there is so much within school variation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at, yes, it's true that there are more higher value added, added teachers in some school districts in New Hampshire than others, but the within school variation is massive. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, you can be in a very fancy school district 
and have not the highest value added teacher and vice versa. You know, and people um, people tend to forget that, but the but the mm. within school variation often swamps the the between school. In, in terms of teachers, in terms of say teachers, right? Or but you could also think about peers. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, you know the, yeah. the the influence of your peers and whatnot. There's lots yeah. of variation even within uh, within a given school. You can be in the best school district, but you might not necessarily be hanging out with the right. smartest Absolutely. kids or the Absolutely. most athletic right. schools. Yeah. Or right, the there's there's just kids. so much variation out there, and so those the stereotypes uh, um, where these generalizations often uh, can lead you astray. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, it makes me think about, um, and I don't. We'll talk about college a little bit later, but just one quick thing about it, which is. Uh, I've often thought that if you can get the best kid in a school you never heard of, I'll take that kid over, you know, the number three or four at Dartmouth or Harvard. You might be a little biased about that, but uh, someone who finishes first, even if it's not the same kind of broad set of talent, uh, there's something special about that. Yeah, no, that's right. You know, and this is um, this is some. It's not something I've really studied, but I, I think about it a lot. I know that certainly, like the Dartmouth admissions department thinks about this a lot, right? Yeah. Do they want the valedictorian from a school that's never sent anyone to the Ivy League, or mm-hmm. do they want you know the number ten person at Stuyvesant, right? Yeah, it's a. In right. some ways, it's an empirical question, and, and, and yeah, uh, um, interesting. So we'll return to that. But uh, what did you find when you when you study the adoptive kids? Well, it turns out that the um, you know, the families matter a tremendous amount, and they matter for certain outcomes. You know, mm-hmm. they don't matter for height, uh, you know, which is not surprising. They <laughs> That's don't matter interesting. For height, okay, you right? can't change that. Right. Can't, you, within the U.S. context, of course, you know, there are areas of the world because where people aren't getting enough nutrition, yeah, yeah, and yeah. height is actually is environmentally, uh, partially environmentally determined. But in the U.S. context, in the OECD context, it's not really, uh, you know, in the modern age, height is, 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 sure. is, is largely genetic. Um, but things like smoking, drinking, um, whether or not they go to college, there's a pretty hefty influence from the uh, um, there's 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 a pretty hefty influence from the raising the adoptive mm-hmm. uh, parents. It's still, um, you know, my study says it's it's somewhat less than fifty percent relative mm-hmm. to the the biological parents. Yep. Um, there are some papers out there that uh, get pretty close to 50-50. So when I was doing all this work, I have some friends and colleagues um, in Scandinavia who were looking at this in Norway and Sweden, hmm. and they actually come pretty close on something like years of education. They, they come pretty close to, you know, a 50-50 split between the adoptive and the, uh, and, and the biological parents. The, the, um, years of, uh, the years of education? Say years of ed- Either you could think about the number of years of education, okay. or a simple zero-one variable for whether or not you completed college. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar things happen with income, where, you know, your adoptive family um, influences your income a fair bit. You know, I would say maybe 25% uh, of the variation is explained by things about your adoptive family. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that all the rest is from your biological parents, but it's from, you know, things that aren't in the model, things that we don't observe in the data. Right. All right. So um, what is it that parents should be doing to reduce Reduce the odds of the kids smoke, other than not smoking themselves. Probably the number one. Yeah, thing I think that's probably the number one thing. Absolutely, yeah. Or increase the odds that they're going to they're going to go to college, or you know, all the good outcomes that you want. Yeah, I think that um, undoubtedly, as as my study implies, there's just parents have so much influence on whether or not their children attend college and whether or not they graduate from college. And you know, it's a lot of it is just kind of exposing them to that idea yeah. early on. Uh-huh. You know, and and of course. 
picking a school district or where you where you live that's gonna that's gonna have a big influence too because what their peers are doing is going to influence. If they're them, all going to college, then you're gonna go to college. Right, it's, it's like, kind of becomes the default. It's not even a discussion. It's just it's, correct. It's yeah. a normal thing. Right. To do. Yeah. Right. Exactly. There's no and you know occasionally uh, my colleagues will have someone who where the child rebels and insists that they're not going to go to college just right. to get their go <laughs> the parents go. But of course, but in the end they always end up going. Right. So they always uh, end up going. So so it's basically what. Uh, uh, so I- income and education are probably the, the, the two broadest drivers in a right. way. Because that also, I, I think that affects probability of smoking as well. Higher oh, absolutely. people smoke yep. much less. Yep, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, you also did a bunch of really interesting studies about kids from that, that I guess, had to leave uh, New Orleans from yes. Hurricane Katrina. Yes. Um, and I studied uh, Hurricane Katrina for a totally different reason, which is the management or leadership decisions that were made in managing the crisis and the mistakes that were made. And, um, and I identified a bunch of really pretty, pretty significant cognitive biases that affected the key decision makers in understanding the hurricane and the implications of that and managing risk. But you looked at the kids that had to leave right afterwards, I guess, right? That's right. And how, how many were you know, had to leave. Was well, it? you know, it's interesting. It's been it's been ten years since I've thought about this deeply. But yeah. let's say that uh, roughly maybe twenty thousand uh, kids got wow. kicked out of uh, New Orleans, uh, yeah. New Orleans uh, proper. I'll have to go. I can go back. That's and, a lot. That's, that. that's a big a lot enough. Of kids. No, yeah. A lot of kids. And they went to Houston a lot. Of yeah, them. a chunk of them went to Houston. I'm going to, off the top of my head, I'm going to say maybe 25 or 30 percent end okay. up in Houston. Mm. But a lot of them end up in uh, just outside of New Orleans and a lot end up in uh, um, uh, Baton, uh, the Baton Rouge uh, school Baton, district. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so um, uh, what what happened to, to them? I mean, that type of disruption cannot be easy. That's right. And so, you know, the study, I, I'm actually... Um, pretty pleased and proud of the, the way that study turned out. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a real bifurcation between what publishes incredibly well and what I'm proud of and I think is interesting. And uh-huh. this, this is definitely falls in the, the, the category of one that I, I find super interesting. Um, there's two things that happen. Of course, you see immediately when you look at their test scores or yeah. their progress through school, you see the effect of the disruption. There's a big drop in their their test scores right away. Right away, and uh, and then there should be because they they missed a month of school and they mm-hmm. are living in a temporary housing mm-hmm. and they're in an all new school district and they they don't they don't have their friends around them anymore. But then um, four three and four years into the process, they actually have a higher test scores than earlier cohorts who've higher. gone through this. Yes, yeah, they they see they not only gain it back, they actually see uh, growth more than you would have predicted. Okay, how did that um, happen? <laughs> well, it's, it, they're in, they're in a, a better school district. You know, they're um, this is this is this is an area of. Uh, of uh, local school control that was just notorious for the outcomes of the kids. And so by, get, you know, a lot of things changed um, o- over the last 15 years in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but just getting out of, just getting them out of the, uh, just getting them out of so the So they went from a poor performing school district. Or a really terribly performing, fact, just an awful. government or state government had to take them over. Right, that's right. And, 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 and somewhere, somewhere along the way, and I can't remember if this was just immediately pre-hurricane, I think this was immediately post-hurricane, that the government yeah. took them over and went to a uh, more of a, a charter school system mm-hmm. um, in, an, in an effort to effectively partially privatize, you know, privatize is the wrong word since these are publicly funded, but to um, change the management yes. um, of, of them. And there's, there's tremendous amount of debate over how that's going. 
Um, it's not obvious that that move alone uh, made a big difference for the kids who now live in New Orleans. Um, there, so there's, there's, there, there's some very intense debate over, over whether, on average, those charters are doing a good job. Yeah. Is that something you also studied, charter schools specifically? You know, it's interesting. I would have, but for the <laughs> fact that there's like 12 other great people working on that. Um, <laughs> And so I was just reviewing, um, over the last couple of days, I was just reviewing that literature. And there's some mm-hmm. wonderful papers, you know, by uh, by Caroline Hoxby, but also by Sue Donarski and uh, Josh Angerson, co-authors, and Will Doby and co-authors. There's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a wonderful literature on uh, returns to charter schools, impacts to charter schools, and which charter schools. And which. So it's, all, as always, more complicated. It's not that it's That's better right. or worse. Correct. There's a lot of other things. That's right. So the kids that went to Houston and other schools, they got out of a bad-performing school district, frankly, yeah. to a better one, and mm-hmm. so they did better. Yeah, they did a lot better. Right. And that and there, that's your environmental impact right there, right? And so you could relate, you know, you go to, you tie, you could tie the adoptee study back to the study of a forced change of school districts, mm-hmm. and you would find somewhat similar effects. Yeah. You know, you would think, oh, well, these things kind of tie together. And um, I, I, I recall reading somewhere also about kids did better, I don't know if it's elementary school level or other kids, that had to leave or families that had to leave because they got out of their kind of microculture that was not a healthy culture, whether it was gang-related or, or where crime was was more common or just being delinquent, and they got out of it, and they had to make new friends and, and new people, and so that helped them. Is so, so of course, I don't in my study, I don't address that. Sure, but um, that would be one hypothesis. Mm. I think the literature that that um, may help address this are all these uh, uh, housing demolition papers. You know, we just we just hired, uh, we were lucky enough to hire a, an economist from UVA named Eric Chin. He studies demolition of housing projects in mm. Chicago, and that's exactly what he's thinking about. Right. Wow. So these housing projects are breeding grounds for bad outcomes for kids. That's certainly that's how the, I would read I, it. That, 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 that's my take. I mean, others yeah. can, you know, people should feel free to disagree with that. But that's, I mean, the government built these massive housing projects because they thought it would be efficient and they yeah. would provide uh, good, clean housing for yeah. lots of people. Yeah. But there were many unintended consequences and yeah. they're tearing them down. They've been tearing them down for quite a while now. Isn't that, I mean, just... That's a radical solution to a yes. problem. Rip yes. down the house, rip down the I housing know. project, as yes. opposed to uh, a dozen other things we could think of that probably some of them have been tried. And, no, and, that's and right. Work. Now, Eric makes the point, you know, if you talk to him about this, and Br- Brian Jacob has also worked on this topic uh, very um, assiduously. Um, they waited, they let the capital depreciate. They didn't tear down, but they didn't say, okay, we're going to tear down these brand new buildings, which mm-hmm. you do see when, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. when governments make mistakes, they will tear down brand new stuff. Mm-hmm. In this case, they let the stuff depreciate to the point of being like really awful. And then <laughs> rather than fixing it, then then, then right. they tore down That's the That's an easier ones. political right. decision, right. I suppose, right. to, Absolutely. Uh, to make. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, really interesting. Let's let's take a, a break and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about how Bruce got interested in all this stuff in the first place. We'll be back with uh, Bruce in a, in a minute, but I, uh, I just wanted to uh, put this out in podcast land. Um, our podcast is really uh, doing great. The Sidcast has been a lot of fun, and my producer, uh, Ben, is, um, uh, unfortunately for me, going back to school. Pretty good for him, uh, but uh, I, need, uh, I need a replacement. So if you're interested in looking to be a uh, producer, 
uh, of the SIDCast, then um, then drop us a line at the SIDCast. Go to uh, www.thesidcast.com and uh, drop us a note and uh, why you're interested and what your background is, and we, we can bring you in to, as, the next, uh, as the next producer. We're back with Bruce Sasserdote. Bruce, before, uh, before the break, we were talking about a lot of things, but one of them was kind of male-female differences and what's genetic and what's not in the role of environment. And uh, I know uh, at the break we were, we were chatting a little bit about that. So um, what, uh, uh, what, what's your take on that? I know it's affected the economics profession as well. Yeah, qu- quite a bit. I mean, we have a, uh, a very active um, committee on the status of women in the economics profession. And one of the facts that has come out, there's been a – there's been a bit of a halt in the progress of getting more women uh, on faculties and into graduate in, schools. In economics. In economics, mm-hmm. yeah. And so one of the things that, that Claudia Golden and Cla- Claudia Olivetti and some other uh, colleagues of mine have been, have been dealing with is asking the question, well, if we look at women who start in economics, why do they, and under what conditions do they stay and under what conditions do they quit? And it turns out that women are more likely to quit after getting, say, a B minus or a C. And the guys just kind of power through and stick with it and and end up continuing. Even with the lower grade. Even with the lower grade. Yeah. And so that, you know, and that really uh, set off a lot of light bulbs. And it's interesting because we, my colleague Jim Fire has looked at this for Dartmouth, and it's it's not true in our department. Mm. Um, But we do still have Mm. uh, uh, fewer women than men in the department. To start with. To start with. And so we're always thinking about, well, how might we change that? How might we yeah, encourage things? Right, and right. would the having more women on the faculty uh, encourage more women? You know, I mean, right. that's, a, that's a big question for all these institutions is, do you, to what degree do you need to have a faculty that mirrors the student body in order to um, engage, to best engage with them? Right. The, the, this is an is, issue, you know, across and politics as well. Uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke has just uh, not that long ago announced he was going to be uh, running for president, and he is the white male in a in a Democratic ca- um, campaign that has uh, many, uh, wi- mostly I don't know, mostly but many, many women, women of color. Yep. And he, one of the things he said early on is, oh, I know that I'm going to have to have um, on my campaign, and if I'm fortunate enough to become president, um, a staff and a team that represents the way America is. Um, so it's uh, it, it's almost accepted orthodoxy that you got to you got to do it. Yes, um, and it's hard to argue against it because you know intuitively it also it also makes sense. But now I can get into trouble. But what about getting the absolute best people? Yeah, and so you know it's funny at the at the level of a presidential administration. I mean, luckily there are so many great people that that you yeah, know if, yeah. if 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 Beto. Uh, goes to draw on the best people he can get. You know, fortunately, there are going to be a lot of women and a, a, lot, a lot of non-white right. people in there. So I think that that's, um, uh, thank goodness that I don't think it's a, a contradiction or, <laughs> or right. either or. It's not going to be a constraint. Yeah. But, you know, I, I do, um, the idea that he should be disqualified for being white and male, I think, is really, really bugs me. And I think that yeah. he, um, he absolutely, y- yes, it's true, we have had a, uh, an unending succession of male presidents, but, well, we almost had Hillary Clinton as, as president. It was almost, I would say, argue, almost a fluke or a, 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 turn, a turn of fate that, that she did not become president. But uh, um, I don't think he should be disqualified just because of his demographics. Well, in the end, you know, people get to decide, voters get to decide. That's right. And, uh, um, and there's also Joe Biden, who's uh, yes. an older uh, yes. or even old white, uh, white yes. male right. who's been around. Uh, you know, in this 
issue about the B minus getting discouraged or a B or whatever yeah. um, it relates to confidence, of course. And there's a lot of research, maybe you know this as well, on confidence and the differences between boys and girls, men and women. There's a book called The Confidence Code that I always uh, reference and uh, is loaded with, with, with studies showing in many walks of life, in business and in school, uh, the different reactions of men and women. Uh, and again, this is a generalization of the type we were talking about. There's obviously a ton of variation, but it still holds as a big difference. Men are much more display more confidence. They don't seem to get discouraged from poor results, and they raise their hand and say, yeah, I'll do it. And women are, and this is the problem, more thoughtful, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is the irony yeah. of the whole no, thing. No, that's right. I mean, it's funny because I, I teach finance where literally, uh, despite what you'd like, what, what money managers would like to believe, there's so much randomness. Most of what's happening in asset pricing is random and not, con- not controlled. But having unwarranted confidence can uh, can be an <laughs> asset in, in in a lot of cases, right? And having the, the sort of hubris, uh, attracting more money, you're yes, thinking, and, yeah. yeah, not attracting more money, being willing, being promoted, being, and it's it's yeah. it's a bit unfortunate. But I do think that that um, there are a lot of areas of life where inappropriate confidence can can pay off. Yeah, and if, the, if that confidence uh, leads to more. Uh, greater variability in decision-making. I don't know if that's automatically that's going to happen. But I'm thinking about the, the money manager example. I'm so yeah. confident. I'm willing to make a bet on my fund. Uh, and I'm going to take a uh, – I believe this kind of what most people say is a unbalanced or a riskier fund. And then, you know, the odds are major failure or something. That's it could right. Be, it could be any outcome. That's but right. But there is a chance that this outlier strategy could lead to results Good, great results, and therefore you are a genius. Yeah, no, that's that's right. I mean, it's a it's a it's a fascinating uh, business, and I do think you know we we're talking about genetics versus environment. I think that th- this these differences in confidence probably are environmental. It smells to me like it's a mm-hmm. very it, part of it could be very environmental. You know, how kids are brought up, for how example. kids are brought up, and their environment could really influence the degree to which yeah. they feel confident, yeah. have the confidence to mm-hmm. to make bold assertions, to try bold things, mm-hmm. to fail and keep going. You know, right. that does feel uh, very which, environmental. Uh, and th- these are important skills to be resilient, yeah. to bounce back, to be willing to, to 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 make a mistake and not say, "Okay, I, I'm I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore." As opposed to saying, "Well, I learned something." And I'm going to show you. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So this, this kind of gets us to some of the work. Um, uh, you've done a lot of work on college choice. And, of course, a lot of people listening are going to want to know uh, what could we do uh, that is uh, not, um, um, not in the category of that guy Singer and, uh, and the criminal enterprise uh, of a while back of mm-hmm. uh, buying grades and, um, and, and bribing and all these unbelievable um, – well, I thought it was unbelievable, but – Maybe it's maybe it's more common than we think. Who knows? Uh, but what what can you do? What did you learn from your research on college choice, and what can parents do in particular to 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 help? Well, you know, there's there's a couple of lessons, and and I'm going to summarize things that I've learned, but also the, largely things I've learned from my colleagues as sure. well in this literature. Um, number one is that. The most where you go does matter. Um, most importantly, because different institutions have different graduation rates, and so you know, choosing you want to choose an institution that's very supportive of students and mm-hmm. has a good graduation rate. Mm-hmm. Of course, it also matters what you study, right? And there are enormous uh, differences in uh, earnings and employment rates depending on what on, yeah. on what you, on what you study. Right. Um, and so you know, and there is. You know, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm working now with John Friedman um, at uh, Brown and, and David Deming at Harvard, and they have a fascinating uh, uh, set of research using tax data to look at where 
people attend college and how much it matters, like conditional on going to a decent four-year school and graduating, mm-hmm. um, how much that impacts their earnings. And it is surprising if you, obviously Dartmouth versus Brown, well, maybe this isn't obvious, but Dartmouth versus Brown almost doesn't matter a lick. Mm-hmm. But if it's Dartmouth versus, uh, you know, uh, your big public state like University of New Mexico, let's say you're from New Mexico and you're choosing mm-hmm. between Dartmouth and New Mexico, there are very large differences in mm-hmm. uh, earnings um, at age 30 and 35 uh, for people who, who uh, are choosing between those two places. And um, it's also bigger for low-income kids. Not only are there big differences um, for everybody, but for first-gen kids and for parents who mm-hmm. – uh, families who hail from the first income quintile, the differences are even bigger. And I, I was quite surprised by that. So kids that grow up in poorer circumstances will have a bigger payoff by going yes. to a higher prestige That's right. school. That's right. The reality is that the um, when you look at sort of, I'm going to call them stark comparisons between a very elite place and a, a fine but not great uh, large public, there's obviously some elite publics out there, but just sort of a, a you know, a, 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 very, a very standard public versus a very elite place, there are shockingly uh, big differences in outcomes um, for those kids and particularly for the low-income kids. Yeah, wow. And some of your work also has been about how to encourage kids to go yes. to college. Yes. So and that the- and that's really my true interest. Like there's a lot of great people, John and David Deming and uh, and Caroline Hoxby and, and Chris Avery who studied um, the payoffs to going to an elite place. Yeah. But um, I'm actually interested in in the the other question, the access question of how do we get kids mm-hmm. to go to college in general? Just in any any college. In any college, okay. getting getting them to go, getting them to graduate. Yeah. And so what, uh, what did you find? So, you know, the, there is an important boy versus girl difference. So what we found in general, we've tried all sorts of things to encourage people to uh, – we could start with applying to college first. We've tried all sorts of things, you know, from just paying people in cash if they file an application uh, to paying for their SAT scores to counseling them on the payoffs um, to mm-hmm. attending college. But the thing that really works is one-on-one mentoring. You know, getting in a room with them and saying, okay, like, look, now's the time. You say you're interested in college. We're actually going to fill out the application. Let's sit down. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about where you want to apply to. Let's actually fill out the application. And so I did this with with an army of um, uh, Dartmouth undergraduates uh, acting as the mentors Mm -hmm. um, throughout, you know, about 20 different uh, school districts in New Hampshire. Mm. And it was a lot of fun. It was a ton of work, but a lot of fun. Right. Um, to do this. And so these kids would go and one-on-one with a, with a, a high, high school, school student that was right. interested in college. High college, school seniors hadn't had, applied had yet. Not, they were seniors. They hadn't seniors. applied. Yep. And they, so it's, it's use the word mentoring, but it's almost like co- coaching. coaching. Yeah. They, it's it's more, even more hands-on. Yeah, that. that's right. It's, it's college coaching. It's coaching people through the process. Yeah. Here's what you do. Go ahead and do it. And just being in the room and encouraging someone to yes, do that. Right. That's really kind of a hands-on. It's a yes. simple approach, yes, but it's a hands-on approach. Yeah, and that made the difference. It makes, yeah, it makes a big difference. You know, and particularly for women, women seem to be more. The high school women seem to be sort of more willing to take direction, or more either they needed the the push more, or they were more open to it. I, I don't know, but we had a much yeah. bigger impact for for women than for men in this in this study. And that's true of. Uh, there's a couple other studies that that find similar. It's not a universal finding, but there, you know, that that is a, a common finding. Yeah. Let's say. It, it kind of uh, it, it kind of relates to something I've observed uh, I've observed about learning, which is one of the best ways to learn is just do something, that's even right. if you stumble along the way. That's right. I'm I'm, I'm remembering a friend of mine who uh, also uh, has done a podcast episode with me, Bill Hammond, who's local mm-hmm. school. 
local in the Upper Valley, school principal and uh, legendary teacher. And uh, he was at my uh, house um, you know, a few months ago, and we were chatting. And I said, you know, one of the things I'm interested in learning how to do that I've never done, I've always wanted to learn how to play, play piano. And he's like a great pianist. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about that, and then we talk about something else. And then he turns to me and he says, you know, Sid, um, you want, do, you, do you want to learn how to play piano? I said, yeah. He says, okay, let's go right now. Because I had a piano in the house. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought... He was modeling exactly the way you should be a great, a great teacher. I mean, that's how I saw it. Uh, yeah. I didn't do so well in a little piano lesson, but that wasn't the point. It was just I got my fingers uh, on, on the keys, and he taught me something. And uh, since that time, I haven't done a lot, but I've done a little bit. And, uh, yeah, just how do you learn? Do it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because that um, this, this makes me think of two, uh, uh, two of our most recent presidents. So Phil Hanlon. Uh, when he came, his sort of mantra or uh, the thing he really wanted to bring to the table was experiential learning. You know, right. he's saying, like, look, right. we've got to, it can't just be Bruce in a room talking about econometric theory. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, hands on. They've got it. The students have a data set. There's a question they want to answer. Mm -hmm. They're going to learn and remember econometrics through doing data analysis, not through talking about it or me giving them a fake data set. Yep. Um, you know, and I 100% I agree with that. Right. Um, I also think about uh, Jim Kim because he uh, talked a lot about, you know, having also to do something. Also a past, uh, past president yes. uh, of Dartmouth. He was um, president of the World the World Bank. World Bank. Uh, right, uh, up until resigning. I believe he's still, uh, I, think he's, I think he's just stepped down from that or he's just Not about to step down. Ago, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, but he always talked about, you know, needing a thousand hours to get to mastery of a skill like playing the piano or, mm -hmm. you know. And so he often thought about, so it's a combination of doing things hands on, as you right, suggested. Right. But also if you're really then becoming really dedicated to it and just doing it over and over and over again until you master um, yeah. that skill. I mean, skill. there's no replacement for just doing it, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so your interest in, you know, adoptive kids, college choices, a lot of stuff about kids and youth, um, where, where, did the, where did it all come from? Why, why is this kind of the center of your research? Um, and probably, you know, and has been for a while. You might, you've done some other things, and we might mm -hmm. touch on some of that as well. But this is the core of it, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The The number one reason, this is not as deep as it might sound, <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the, the number one reason why I work in this area is that it's accessible. People can understand it. I can explain it to someone who's not an economist, mm -hmm. and they get why it's important. Yep. All right? And so that's why. So it's a, it, to, to me, I need to work on a question that's practical, that has some real meaning in the world, yeah. and is where I actually, number one, I think it's an important question. Number two, I actually believe the answer when we get to an answer. You, you know? believe the answer because? Because we've got some, we've got a lot of data behind it, and we have a plausible method of identification. We have, in the case of this, this college uh, coaching study, we have a treatment and control group. You could compare the treatment of the control group. And now, it's not perfect. It doesn't necessarily apply to any uh, uh, group of high school students across the country. But it's a pretty strong signpost that said, hey, in this context, in New Hampshire, you know, when we provided this coaching, you know, this, this yeah. is the difference and it right. really matters. Yeah. So you know? you, and so you believe the result because the research is good. It's yeah. carefully done. Right. Yeah. You, know, you, need, you need a decent design. Even if you have to, because it's a careful design, you have to narrow it down to a perhaps a smaller or more narrow question than you want it to. Now, there are a lot of questions that might be important and a lot of questions for which you might feel very confident because of the research design and the data collection and, and, and the way the whole thing is done, uh, that, that you're, getting, you're finding out what's really going on. But that doesn't explain youth and kids and college choices as a topic. No, that, that's fair. And so, um, so let me I'll go a little farther on this. So when uh, going back to Alan Kruger, 
um, he was uh, just becoming famous as I was in graduate school, and he uh, uh, worked with a good friend of mine named Josh Angrist. Mm -hmm. And he and Josh and David Card and a few other great social scientists convinced me about the value of having really credible designs and yeah. really credible research. Of course, that, that's the mantra now, but it wasn't, you know, in 1993 when I, when I showed up in graduate school. Um, now, this, the kids stuff, you know, I've got three of my own. I find it absolutely fascinating. And there's so much policy that we're making, that we're doing around kids. And so at the time, it seemed like um, an area that it was clearly an area that was ripe for exploration. Yeah. You know, right, right. Do your kids ever feel like you're experimenting on them? You know, they're so in. They talk about unwarranted confidence and self-esteem. <laughs> they really don't need. Uh, they don't need me for much. Or um, they occasionally will ask me questions about research or questions about. You know, my daughter, who's a freshman at Brown, will, will ask me questions about uh, um, college life and navigating college life and things and what I think about uh, sure. a particular class. But they don't really see me as as. Uh, um, I'm not really engaged in experimenting on them. Um, yeah, they're kind, right. of, they're this, kind of off in their own world. <laughs> this this is one of the uh, common themes from uh, asking uh, guests on the Sidcast about the, uh, th that are parents about their kids. It uh, doesn't matter how accomplished you are, doesn't matter what you did. You know, it's not not, not all that impressive, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah no, that's right. <laughs> Which is not, not 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 a bad thing, and actually maybe the way it should be. Right? That's right. Yeah, great. Well, let's take another short break with Bruce and come back with our last segment. This is graduation season, and I'm sure uh, people are thinking about, you know, what am I going to uh, get for uh, the graduate in your family or uh, or friend and uh, or friend of the family? And, uh, you know, there's nothing better than a book. It doesn't have to be one of my books, just so you know, but there's nothing better than a, uh, than a book. Even uh, the old-fashioned method, a hardcover book. You know, millennials should know that books don't come on digital format only. So um, uh, buy a book. Give it to your um, give give it to your uh, graduating uh, student, graduating kid, graduating uh, friend. If you happen to like um, super bosses, which is all about learning how to become a, mo a more effective boss as you enter the workforce, so much the better. But it could also be Dr. Seuss. Just give a book. We're back with Bruce Sasserdote. One of the things that uh, that's interesting is this 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 uh, focus or obsession about boats and treasures and all kinds of things. Tell tell us about that. Well, you know that mostly comes. It's partly from my dad, who my mom and dad love boating, and uh, when they decided they couldn't live on Cape Cod because it was too far from their work yeah. in Massachusetts. Um, we they bought a nice home on uh, a lake in Walpole, Mass. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, my brother and I spent every day of every summer out fishing, sailing, uh, water skiing, canoeing, you name that it. sounds idyllic. Oh, it was, it was just great. It was just great. And we ended up buying uh, a place when Michelle and I moved up here. You know, I was very eager to find a, a spot on a lake. And yeah. we have a cabin out on Goose Pond uh, now. Yeah, which is not super far from Hanover and Hampshire. Yeah, that's right. Right. And what about the treasure hunting part? So my other side, it happened that my dad uh, married uh, into a family that was even more into boating <laughs> and, and outdoor activity uh, than he was. And so uh, my uncle Charles um, developed, he's a nuclear physicist, and uh, he became super interested in these, these Spanish treasure fleets that were wrecked uh, off the coast of Florida and, and the Bahamas and, and elsewhere in the Caribbean. Um, I spent a lot of my childhood uh, with him uh, relocating. Uh, a lot of these wrecks and, and diving on them. You would, you would find, you'd have to find them. Yeah, we'd have to find them. Now, they were known wrecks. We we don't have to our names uh, an un, a previously undiscovered wreck. These were yeah. wrecks that people knew about and had been, you know, discovered in the 50s, but okay. we had to rediscover them. 
Right. And so how do you rediscover them? I mean, you have charts. There's, there's you have documentation. Charts. You have um, some very, in our case, this was pre, uh, before GPS was really a thing. And so you'd mm. have uh, lines of sight that would relate it to uh, points, uh, you know, five miles away on land and, huh. and radio towers and such. And you'd use those to kind of get the general area mm. and you'd search. And you'd search by just diving. Yeah, diving and being dragged behind a boat. We called it shark baiting. Uh, <laughs> so you'd get dragged uh, behind a boat. You know, uh, more sophisticated treasure hunters would drag magnetometers, but there's certain, uh, you know, to look for eye, large iron objects like cannon and such. But there's reasons why that's not always the best. Uh, that's not always the perfect uh, right. so system. You you dove scuba diving. Sure. Dove. Yeah. How, how deep did you have to go to find Well, things? a lot of these wrecks were only in, you know, 30 to 40 feet of water. Okay. And uh, so my uncle, who's uh, quite a fascinating character, Uncle Charles, um, he became interested in this technology called uh, a, a, a hooker rig, which is a uh, an air compressor that's mm-hmm. on the surface floating on an inner tube, and then you can feed air to the divers down to 40, 50 feet uh, using garden hoses. And <laughs> so we were one of the early owners of that technology, and uh, that's a for shallow diving, it's a super practical. Uh, Sa- sounds like a scuba hack of some yeah, type. Yeah, garden exactly. Hoses. Yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah it's, yeah, it's a garden hose and a scuba regulator, and it's a it's a great system. Yeah. Um, so, do you remember the first time you were diving, you actually found a wreck? Yeah, it was a really big, big deal. And this was, I was probably in sixth grade. Oh. And, uh, you know, we were trying to relocate ones that he had already, we started with ones that he had already located. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, moved on to ones that he didn't know where they were yet. And yep. not many people yep. did. Um, but I do remember finding them and and, and uh, uh, diving on them and finding the ballast pile. And, and uh, um, yeah, and, and, and then he was, his big interest was in um, inventing and improving on metal de- underwater metal detection. And so uh, I also uh, did a lot of assisting him, and he we would find you know cannonballs and objects and coins. And you whatnot. would find all that. So what, oh, yeah. what did you do? Are you allowed to take that? In those days, yes. Now, because it was it was in uh, federal waters. Now it's all uh, thanks in part to uh, work that Uncle Charles did. It's all uh, marine sanctuary, and it's it's not it cannot be touched. It cannot but, be touched. But yeah. in those days, it could be. So uh, is is marine life using it as some type of yeah you reef know of sorts? yeah one that's a, that's a great question because one of the great misconceptions about a man's uh, impact on the oceans is that. Um, if you sink a ship or uh, a car falls off a boat or a container falls off a ship, that that's a problem for marine life. In fact, um, marine life tends to grow and thrive around metal objects that humans have lost. <laughs> really? Yes. And they need habitat, you know, yeah. fish. And, and so people in Florida, when I was a kid, I don't know that this still uh, happens, but um, people will, would intentionally sink barges and things uh, to provide habitat for huh. lobster and fish and things. The state would encourage this. Um, that's so. not at all the way people think. Most people think about it. You think right. about it as pollution, right? You're polluting right, the right. oceans. What's the right. matter with you? We certainly dumping oil in the ocean is is, is that awful. A bad, that's not a good one. But but uh, providing, you know, the navy would periodically sink. Uh, they would clean uh, old destroyers and 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 uh, intentionally uh, sink them uh, in strategic huh. spots to provide. Ha- Very habitat. interesting. So do you do you have anything that you still today that you picked up in the days you could take what you wanted? From oh, sure. Show? Yeah. I have a cannonball right next to our television at home. I have a cannonball. You have a, ca- a cannonball next. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. From the 1733 fleet. Wow. I remember distinctly uh, finding, uh, um, the day we found five or six of them. That, was, uh, that must be unbelievable as a kid to see a thing oh, like yeah, that. Oh yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, but like research, it, it, after a while, it becomes just 
a lot of hard work. Like the first mm. time yeah. you're diving on a, on a, mm. a, 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 the remains of a Spanish shipwreck, it's totally fascinating. But after a while, you know, it's just pure hard work. You're, yeah. you're conducting a grid search, and it's a lot of searching and very little finding, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, um, but it was, it, was, it was really neat. It yeah. was really neat. This, uh, so this uh, growing up on the water, doing these treasure hunts, boating, and all, and all the rest, and the interesting uh, uncle. Yes. <laughs> uh, do you think in some way that's affected the decisions you've made in your own life, in your own career? Yeah, you know, I've certainly, I picked a career like you. I picked one that's very entrepreneurial and offers mm-hmm. a lot of independence mm-hmm. and a lot of um, opportunity mm-hmm. to shape what I'm working on yep. and shape the hours that I'm going to work and how I'm going to do that and who I'm going to partner with. And so I think that I think I've been really influenced by my family in yeah. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering whether you agree with this, but one of the things that I found the most useful, the most interesting and the most useful for a career is to be able to ask good questions. You know, in academia, people use the term taste to describe that. You know, mm-hmm. he has a good taste in problems. That's right. Uh, and fine, you could say that. But practically speaking, it's asking an interesting question that is worth spending time to figure out, and people are going to care about that. That if you can do that, and it's not, it's not obvious that everyone could do it, um, but if you can do that, that kind of makes, makes what the career is all about. I mean, is that how you look at yeah, it, too? Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, you know, Ed Glazer um, at Harvard um, said to me early on, he's like, uh, well, I like this business because it's very entrepreneurial, and you yeah. can, you know, you're sort of not an independent contractor. That's um, not exactly what I mean to say, but, you know, you have so much freedom. To choose, and you've got to you've got right. to you know try to make good choices and think hard about where you're gonna where you're gonna right. invest your time. Absolutely, and, we've had a lot of um, entrepreneurs on the Sidcast, um, and in many ways, most of the people in some ways are entrepreneurs in the sense that they they're crafting their life. Uh, they're doing one thing, they're doing another thing. In, in, in your case, it's one thing in, the, in that it's the umbrella of academia, but within that umbrella, there are all these, you know, each project is a different business of sorts. And uh, you know, each uh, interaction or collaboration with colleagues in some other school is a, is a, is a different kind of line of business of yep, sorts. that's right. And um, yeah, so it's very entrepreneurial. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. And I think the more people can create that entrepreneurialism in their own lives and their own careers, the better. But I, I don't want to, you know, could, that could come off a little bit too elitist. Some people don't have any opportunity to do that. You got to go to work, and it's an eight to six job, and, mm-hmm. and I understand that. But whenever it's po- and I tell this to my students as well, to the extent that it's possible, you instill some degree of entrepreneurialism into your, into how you conduct your career. It's just really yes. fun. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, I don't work on the happiness literature, but you know, my yeah. colleague Danny Blanchflower and many others do. Yep. You know, control, having some control over your life and your work life is enormously correlated with people's life satisfaction. Exactly. I remember reading about that from sociologists like Durkheim mm-hmm. you know, when I was in graduate school. And, and uh, it was one of the biggest reasons why factory workers were so uh, unhappy and why unions were being formed. And all, I mean, mm-hmm. Yes, there's economic incentives for that, but there's a lack of control over their lives. Yeah. And that's just a very difficult thing. It is, uh, right? To, to, and, and, and to the extent that firms are able to give workers the opportunity to have input and say, oh, well, maybe we could do this differently or maybe, we, you know, maybe yeah. we could structure the workday differently. Maybe we could do the assembly differently. And that, that obviously, there are big payoffs when firms are able to do that. Exactly. I mean, you're seeing a big involved. trend now also with, uh, you know, work from home. It's very common for people mm-hmm. that are even in big jobs to work one day a week or, or mm-hmm. sometimes more. But let's say one day a week, work from home. It gives you a tremendous amount of, of control. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, so you've gotten some pretty good advice along along the way from graduate mentors and sounds like from uh, mm-hmm. uncles and parents and, and yep. the like. Now imagine you can go back <laughs> right. to yourself. Right. Uh, imagine you can kind of transport yourself back to when you were 21 and you were sitting next to yourself. Uh, what 
piece of advice would you give would you give 21-year-old Bruce? You know, I'd probably say to be, because I tried a number of different things before I became an academic. And so, and, and normally we tell our Dartmouth undergraduates, yeah, you got to try a lot of things and, 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 you know, figure out what you're truly interested in. And I think that that's good advice. But I think I would have told myself to get, upon finding that, become even more committed. You know, mm-hmm. like commit... It's okay to commit early and to get very committed. And because these mm-hmm. careers, you know, if you look at s- successful academics or or successful hedge fund managers, a lot of them get started early and kind of go all in once they realize that yeah. that's what they want to yeah. do. And so, you know, I could have gone even farther faster had mm-hmm. I, you know, been able to um, had I had I had I really just jumped in and said, okay, I definitely want to be an academic. You know, if I if I from because I was I was already thinking that at 21 when I met Steve Levitt and he encouraged me to go to graduate school. Steve Levitt from Freakonomics. Uh, from Freakonomics, yeah, yeah, the, the professor at the University of Chicago, fascinating guy, and he was. I was speaking earlier about people who were really interested in data and identification back in the early 90s mm-hmm. when he and I were in graduate school, and he was a real pioneer in that and encouraged me to work on interesting topics, yeah. work on yeah. topics that economists had not t- much tackled or hadn't tackled before. Right. Um, right. And uh, that was great advice. And so if I had, had encouraged myself, hey, you know, just dive in with both feet, don't hesitate, don't yeah. hedge, just, right. you know, yeah. do that. And this is a tough question. I don't even know what the answer is, but how do you, how do you know? How do you know for sure that, yeah, I've tinkered, I've experimented, as you said, and that this is it, that I want to be um, – uh, I, I want to be an academic. I want to be a, a, a lawyer. I want to be, uh, you know, a, um, a detective. Whatever. Right. It is. How do you how, how do you know such a thing? Yeah, I know it's really hard, and I, and you don't. And uh, you know, my father-in-law, um, Ralph Ernie, always says that. Well, it's only after someone's like well into their career that mm-hmm. you can look back and say, oh, that's how all these pieces fit together. Yeah. It's not obvious at the time right. that you know because I was interested in like you know, fixing engines and, and solving problems and computers that mm-hmm. somehow that would translate into being a data scientist right. or because I liked uh, explaining things to people or learning from others that that would make me a professor versus something else. You know, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's so yeah, I think, you, I think you don't know. You don't, you don't know. Uh, so at some, at some point you kind of have to put, go, go kind of all in. The yeah. And, and say, say, I'm going to yeah, do this. Um, which is, uh, uh, which is a, a tough thing to know, a tough thing to do, but it sounds like you have to. You have, yeah, at yeah. some point, you're going to do it That's if right. you're going to be successful in something. That's right. And I think your point is you're probably better off doing it a bit earlier if you Yeah, if you for can. me, uh, yeah, I, sh- I wish I'd start. I yeah. wish I'd started yeah. a, a bit earlier. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, was that your uncle you just talked about? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what, and your parents, any bit of advice you remember from all the things that they must have shared with you over you, the years? You know, my mom's main thing, certainly they were super focused on education, right? And, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, my dad has has master's in uh, engineering. He was a chemical engineer. Um, and uh, But, you know, my mom's main focus was always, you know, just be kind to other people, be good, be, mm-hmm. you know, be mm-hmm. ethical. And that really stuck with me because that, yeah. that's so important. And even though, you know, there are times, there are professions where it doesn't seem like being kind and, mm-hmm. and being uh, thinking about the other person it has an immediate payoff, it, it certainly has a payoff in the long run. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. That's kind of one of the key lessons of my own mom. Do the right thing. Is yeah, kind of, do the right thing. I, and, right. She's gone a number of years now, but I think about it almost every day. Yeah. It's so interesting um, how some of these lessons are that impactful that they'll stay, yeah. they'll stay with you. Um, that's also if you reverse it a little bit, you think about what we all could do as parents or as mentors for students or just anyone, any younger people. 
the potential impact is gigantic. Uh, yeah. We shouldn't take it for granted. No, I agree. And, you know, I try, um, we had our, our nine-year-old's um, parent-teacher conference yesterday, and this came up a lot because, you know, it's like, oh, here's things he's doing really well and here's things to work on. But, the, you know, when his teacher said, look, he's, you know, he's very uh, good with the other students in the classroom and he's... Uh, um, you know, likes to teach them things and learn from them and gets yeah. along with them. I was like, okay, that's a relief. That's that's like... <laughs> that's the, a good thing. That's what you want, right? Yeah. And even though, you know, uh, even more than, you know, completely excelling in math or completely excelling mm-hmm. in, in Spanish or something, the fact that he enjoys school and that he's being a good peer, that's going to take him a long way. Yeah. You know, there's uh, there's been some actually quite a bit of research on this idea that people have evolved to, it's kind of an odd thing to say given every, all the polarization, all the terrible things that go on around the world, but that people have evolved to actually be kind, that there's an advantage to being kind. Mm-hmm. And, and the logic is that um, that enables us to live in, in bigger groups. Yeah. And bigger groups give us huge protection yes, right. and economies and benefits. That's right. uh, which, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of an odd thing. I'm saying it and, and, I, and I think about all these terrible things happening in the world. But yeah, I think it's still I think it's still true. Yeah, and I mean you I mean your point, I mean we live in a massive, you know, 300 million person society where <laughs> we each of us is only producing one little, you know, one little good or service and yes. and and we interact and we use the same currency and we trust, you know, we right. someone does a service uh, for right. me, it comes over and trims all my trees <laughs> and they just know they're going to get paid and That's they know right. they're not going to get I screwed. I mean trust. Uh, yeah. I I've, yeah, tr- without trust I don't think and I don't think the economy can operate without yeah, trust. It falls apart. Yeah. Um um what about your? Uh, so you're you're married. How, where'd you meet your uh, your wife? So you know, I, I do a lot of work on peer effects, and I met Michelle through uh, a fraternity brother of mine, Dartmouth fraternity brother. Um, he uh, his sister was rooming with Michelle at Skidmore, and uh, so you know, and I'm very close with a lot of my uh, Dartmouth peers, and and so. A uh, couple years after uh, we graduated, I met her, I, you know, I met through them, and I felt like she, Michelle's extremely social, and I felt like the few times when I'd go to a bar, there there would be Michelle, and I would run <laughs> into her, and, uh, um, uh, you know, at one point, we were just at the right point in our lives where we were both single, and I asked her out, and we, you know, oh, yeah. uh, we, we started going, we found we liked a lot of the same things. And so. That's that's great, that's great. Yeah, these, uh, I often ask um, um, guests on the, on, the, on the podcast that question, it's kind of an odd question, but every time somebody... Every time somebody answers, it's like people can't see your face, but it just lights up talking right, about you right. know Michelle and what that was like. And yeah. it's uh, these are great stories. These are human. This is what you know life, right. is, life is about. Yeah. Um, um, so you've done. Uh, I mean, you're in the you're in the the heart of your career, really, with a lot of interesting projects. A lot of projects you've you've already done. What's the what's the next uh, stage? Do you think? Um, whether that's a whole new area of research or a different type of thing to to, to do. Uh, I don't mean outside of academia, but um, being the on, being entrepreneurial yeah. um, and in economics, it enables you to do a lot of different things. Yeah, and so you know that that's a great question. I ask I ask myself that um, on a daily basis. Huh. Um, I've got three different. I, I have to do something big. The the profession has become so competitive. Mm-hmm. There are like a thousand good labor economists out there <laughs> in the world, and uh, working with great data sets. Yeah, and yeah. so you know either. I need to further um, – I've got some great co-authors at Treasury who have access to these amazing data. So either I need to further explore that and mm-hmm. do, you know, four or five projects on things that almost no one else could do because I don't have access to the, the data. Yeah. Or um, I've got a, a good friend. Uh, he, he lives kind of between you and me, uh, Kevin McCurdy. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, 
And he and John Pepper have uh, – they're building a new company called Worthy that helps – it's, it's an app that helps low-wage workers in a whole mm-hmm. variety of ways. Well, you know, Kevin and I have talked about working together and using that group as a sample where I could say, okay, well, look, let's offer this special service, you know, employment. Let's try to help this group of yeah. folks find a, a new source of employment, a new occupation, mm-hmm. um, or a new educational opportunity. And, you know, could we – could I design research papers around that? Because they're going to potentially have a massive wow. set of the folks idea. that are, yeah. yeah, right. So you know, I've, so I've got a couple things in that vein, but I've got to do something. It's got to be relatively big, and hopefully, it's got to be differentiated from what the other one thousand yeah. smart. I get labor the differentiated, and of course, yeah. I do get the big. But I'm still going to ask you why big. Why does it have to be big? Well, you know, that's a, that's a fine question. So I could, for example, I'm doing what I consider in turn. You know, if you ask me in my heart of hearts. Good work, you know, trying to get, say, more community college students to graduate from community college and more students to go to college. But um, at the end of the day, in the journals, so I I think, fortunately, this is having a a good societal impact. But there are other people in the space, and increasingly so. And so it needs to be um, something that I need something that's big enough in scope that I can make statistical tests to say, hey, this is a real difference. It And it needs to be big in the sense of substantially different from what we already know, yeah, yeah, right? Right, right. No, I get, I get that. And uh, I mean, it's the hallmark of, uh, of, of a great academic that you want to you wanna have that. It, it's, all, it's always about impact, right? So um, have you ever given any thought to putting together a lot of these ideas uh, in, in a book format for a wider audience? You know, I've thought about it, and occasionally I've talked to um, – there's, um, you know, editors are super kind in getting in touch with academics. Yeah. And um, it's just a lot of hard work. I know you've written a couple of books. Um, it's a yeah. totally different form of communication it, and writing. Exactly. It's, it's completely different. But it does enable you to share what your research has shown with not hundreds or low thousands, but uh, hundreds of thousands yeah. and, and potentially even millions. No, that, that's right. And so maybe when the right... Um, I had a couple different book ideas, which yeah. I've sort of discarded. Um, you know, one of them, I, I'm fascinated. I'm almost better when, when it comes to book ideas at communicating something that economists know that's not necessarily just my research. Because yep. as you've, you've heard from this interview, my research is, you know, a 1% of a puzzle about what we know sure. about higher ed or peer effects or something. Um, but, you know, there's some big ideas out there like this, this, this notion that Americans are poorer than they were in the 1970s, right? Mm. I just – I fundamentally reject that. Mm. I think that the world is – other than, other than the, the climate change problem, the world is a fundamentally better place than it was 30 and 40 years ago. Mm. Um, and this is not based on – solely on my research. I'm only a tiny little sliver of the research in sure, that. But sure. that's the kind of thing I would like to – to do a book on, you know, just right. just put this idea out there, like, okay, guys, let's stop. The world we're so much better off than we were forty years ago. Right. Let's let's talk about the fifty ways in which that's true. Exactly. Wow. Well, I hope you uh, somehow find some room to put that into the uh, portfolio. I think that would be a great uh, a great book. Bruce, thanks so much for being with us on the Sidcast. I really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Thank you, Sid. Thanks for having me.